Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. My guest today is Stephen Lipstein, president and CEO of BJC Healthcare, a $3.1 billion hospital in St. Louis, Missouri. Steve, welcome to Econ Talk. Thank you very much for having me. We've done a number of shows in the past on healthcare. I thought it'd be useful to talk to someone on the hospital side about hospitals' day-to-day operations and the policy environment they're in. I'd like to start with pricing. Uh, anybody who's been in a hospital and gotten a bill or seen a bill always finds it a bit mysterious. So tell us a little about how prices get set and um, what leeway you have or don't have. Well, well, um, Russ, to, to start off with, I think uh, most of our listeners would be interested to know where the money comes from in a, uh, in a healthcare system such as BJC. BJC has 13 hospitals. Two of them are big teaching hospitals. Three of them are small rural hospitals. Some have... Um, uh, are located in suburban neighborhoods. Some are located in the urban core. So when you think about our mixture of hospitals, we're thinking big and small, teaching and non-teaching, urban and rural, pediatric and adult. About 30% of the revenue that we take in as a health system comes from the federal government through Medicare. Medicare is the federal program that ensures people over the age of 65 and certain categories of the disabled. About 13% of our revenue comes from Medicaid. Medicaid is the program that is funded jointly by the federal government and by the states and ensures people who live below a certain threshold or the federal poverty limit and other categories of the disabled. Now, for those two groups, Medicare and Medicaid, we don't actually set prices. Those prices are legislated by the government. Correct. And so they're not based on on what you might consider... um, a true economy. They're not based on the cost of goods sold. They're not based on... It's not supply and demand. Supply and demand. That's correct. They're based on, really, availability of government funds for the services they want to provide to the beneficiaries they cover. So the other big payer in this mix are the commercial payers, or what some people would call the insurance companies or managed care organizations. And they account for pretty much the balance of our patient service revenue. Now, in that situation, BJC, an organization of our size, has literally hundreds of managed care contracts that are different based on who the insurer is and who the employer is uh, within that insurance group. And so what's happened over time, and this goes back many, many years, is that um, those insurers wanted to negotiate discounts with hospitals or with doctors And so the larger the discount they negotiated, the higher the price grew. So a very simplistic example, if the original price was $100 and the insurer wanted a a 2% prompt pay discount, um, then the effective revenue to the hospital was $98. Over time, insurers wanted to negotiate bigger and bigger discounts, and so it took a lot more uh, of a price increase to generate that same $98. Yeah. So if the insurer wanted a 50% discount, you can see that the price would grow to $200. And so within the prices that we charge to commercial payers are these 
negotiated discounts, which actually gross up the, um, the price a good bit. But in addition, because our other prices are legislated for Medicare and for Medicaid, I'm sure you're familiar with the fact that, that because we have to cover our costs from some source, if we can't cover our costs from Medicare and from Medicaid, we shift that burden to the commercial payers as well. Sure. So what you end up with on the commercial side is very inflated prices to cover the underpayments from Medicare, the underpayments from Medicaid, as well as these deep discounts that have been negotiated by the large insurance companies. Well, what's the meaningfulness of a discount? You know, it's like, uh, uh, what's the meaningfulness of it when it's, what's, there's no difference between full price at 100 and half off at 200. That's exactly right. So um, what's going on there? So what you're, what you're seeing is that hospitals, by and large, need to generate about a 3% operating margin. Um, and when you take that together with their non-cash expenses like depreciation, you'll end up with about 9 to 10% of revenue that helps them to meet their capital expenditure obligations. So, for example, to replace the facilities, the property, the plant, and the equipment, the instrumentation of a hospital enterprise such as BJC takes about 9% of revenue. And so we generate about 6% of that um, off of our depreciation expense and about another 3% off of our operating margin. If our operating margin is negative for Medicare and Medicaid, we just shift that cost to the commercial payers. And, um, and then, obviously, we have to mark those prices up in order to, um, to offset the cost of the bigger and bigger discounts. But the pricing, you're, you're completely right in your conclusion that the, the prices mean very little inside the industry anymore. Very few payers actually pay list price, if any, and... Um, and the system doesn't make much sense, which is why at this particular point in, 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 in time, the, the prospect of trying to reform this system makes a whole lot of sense to a lot of people. Well, I want to get to that later, but just to talk a little bit more about the nuts and bolts. Um, I remember I, I was fortunate enough to uh, have two kids delivered at uh, BJC okay. when, I, when I used to live in St. Louis. And uh, it was a very pleasant experience, by the way, for me, obviously. Uh, I think my wife even had a decent uh, time, although she did the bulk of the work, as you, as you know. Right. Um, but, you know, there, you know, there's charges on there, of course. At the end, you get a bill. And I was an employee of Wash- Washington University at the time. I think the entire experience cost me something like $15, you know, something absurd. I can't, I can't remember what it was. Right. But, of course, it didn't cost my fellow uh, workers at Washington University Fifteen dollars. They had to, through the uh, insurance premiums that we paid as employees, we were covering each other. And this is a strange thing to be covered. It's mandated by law that that in most states, uh, you ha- if you offer insurance, it's got to include a certain minimum number of things. And then the federal government imposed us in the case of maternity delivery a second day at night in the hospital, which my wife really appreciated and was paid for, of course, by taxpayers and and others. Uh, in that implicit implicit subsidy. But when we got the bill, you know, there's a long list of stuff on the bill, and one of the charges is for orange juice, <clears throat> which my wife really enjoyed. And it was a very large number. Uh, I don't remember what it was. It, it was a very large number. And as you point out, that, that number doesn't really have any meaning. And 
if if everybody started bringing their own orange juice because they said, my gosh, the hospital, when you get it there, they charge $100 or something like $100. That really wouldn't reduce the cost of deliveries by $100, right? That's just a, That's correct. an I mean, illusion. The, the example my dad used to use was, Steve, why do I get charged $40 for an aspirin pill or an aspirin tablet when I'm in the hospital? And, and uh, there are so many uh, different explanations for why it costs $40 ranging from the fact that the, the aspirin tablet had to be individually packaged and delivered to the floor and administered by a registered nurse because we were in a hospital environment, to the fact that, that, that not only was Dad paying for his aspirin pill, but he was also paying for the aspirin pill of everybody who was in the hospital who wasn't insured and couldn't afford to pay for their own aspirin, to the fact that Medicare didn't cover the full price of the aspirin tablet, nor did Medicaid. Uh, to the fact that we were actually teaching doctors and nurses how to administer the aspirin tablet. So kind of in the absurd, when you add all the costs of our social missions, caring for the poor and the uninsured, caring, uh, educating the next generation of healthcare professionals, uh, complying with rules and regulations and delivering that aspirin tablet to the patient's bedside, um, plus there's been a negotiated discount on the aspirin tablet, you can begin to understand why the price has little meaning to both the consumer as well as to the provider. And certainly I had no incentive to bring my own orange juice or bring my own aspirin. <clears throat> but the point I want to emphasize is that if I had said, you know, the last time I was here, you charged me 40 bucks for this. Right. And it was covered by insurance, but I feel kind of guilty making my employer and my fellow employees pay for this. So, so I brought my own. Um, w- would the bill go down? The, um, you know, there are some... Uh, uh, situations where people can bring some supplies from home. Um, but typically, we uh, in the hospital environment, we don't encourage people to bring medications from home because we, um, we, uh, there are rules and regulations and laws that govern the administration of medications in a hospital. I think the, 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 there, there are lots of important ways that we all need to, um, to think about the healthcare services that we consume and how we could consume less and how we can save money. There are lots of ideas. I'm not sure that starting with bringing your own orange juice from home <laughs> would be the most cost-effective way to do no, that. No, I hear you. Uh, but I, let me ask a side question sure. uh, to the extent it's not a, a in-house secret. What proportion of your day and uh, what proportion of staff spends time trying to figure out the right way to deal with this complex interaction between the Medicare, Medicaid pricing, the insurers, and uh, your capital costs, et cetera. I think I think that um, I you know I I I don't spend a lot of uh, of my individual day doing this, but I can tell you that we spend a lot of money managing a very outdated revenue cycle in the American healthcare industry. There are estimates that we as a nation spend. $300 billion more than they would spend in other developed nations because we have, um, we have this very fragmented system of paying for healthcare services. So what we do spend time uh, trying to figure out is how do we generate enough money, enough, enough resource, so that we can pay our staff competitive wages and benefits, so that we can buy the supplies and the services and the medications that our patients require, so that we can purchase information systems, so that we can purchase equipment and instrumentation and other technology that allows us to do our very best work. How can we do that within this Medicare system, which is national, 
Medicaid, the Medicaid system, which is specific to each of the 50 states, and then the managed care and commercial insurance uh, system, which, as I've shared with you, will vary from provider to provider, from insurer to insurer, and from employer to employer. Well, let me let me follow up with a, another anecdote, which I think is pretty symptomatic of, of this nature of some of this of this complexity and this mess. And gets to for me, it always has <clears throat> helped me understand and illustrate the, the the problem. And I'd be curious to hear your solution. Uh, another one of my experiences in the hospital at, at BJC was I had a sore throat that didn't go away. Now, a sore throat that doesn't go away can be nothing, and it can be something horrible. And my dad had had a um, a polyp in his throat right about the same age, so I was kind of nervous about it. it. Could be cancerous, so I went into the to the uh, hospital. And the doctor took out this very sophisticated piece of technology. Uh, it's a little piece of wood that looks like a popsicle stick. And he put it on my tongue, and he looked down my throat. And he said, I don't think it's anything. And he said, but just to be sure, let's take a better look. And he took out this very cool thing, which was a, a little uh, probe that he put down my throat. And my throat was then displayed on a really cool camera up on the corner of the office. And it allowed him to take a peek at what was really going on better than he could with the tongue depressant. And it wasn't anything. And so that was great. I, I got a good night's sleep, and I didn't worry about my throat. Uh, if I had been paying for it, I might have gone for that uh, fancy device. But since I wasn't paying for it out of my pocket, I said I – he didn't even ask me if I wanted it, right? It, it's never an option in most of these situations. It may, not, it, may, it may be a legal issue, but certainly in, most patients want it. But if I had said, you know, we don't really have to use this expensive technology. I'll just – if it comes – if it doesn't go away in a few days, I'll come back. But that's not what we do typically. Typically, we use the expensive technology. So I, two questions. One is uh, what incentives would you encourage to get people to, to sometimes take a chance – and avoid those technologies. And a more basic question, in today's world, how does a hospital decide to acquire the latest cutting-edge technology? How much of it is – what drives it? Is it the legal environment you're in? Is it the insurer's willingness to pay for it? Is it negotiated? What determines the pace of technological innovation, which has been extraordinary, and I think it's one of the greatest things about our medical system, but it's very expensive. The, uh, well, let me, let me take those two questions um kind of one at a time. The first question was, what kind of financial incentives or economic cost sharing could we put into place so that you would have thought twice before you would have allowed that physician to put a scope down uh, to, to examine your throat as opposed to just using a tongue depressor? And, the, um, and we are in the midst of that dilemma as a, as a, as a nation right now because as you well know, over the past several years, we have increased um, the deductibles on health insurance policies. We have increased uh, patients' out-of-pocket cost-sharing with higher co-payments or higher co-insurance levels, with the economic theory being that uh, anything that is free will have higher demand than anything that costs money. You bet. And so the more that the, – so that um, had you had to pay for that special procedure – um, the demand for that service may go down because there'd be a price associated with what would be the incremental value or benefit to you sure. in knowing that the doctor got a closer look at whatever was, was causing your sore throat at the time. And sometimes I'd make a mistake. I'd say, don't do it, and I'd get throat cancer, God forbid, and that would be a, a bad mistake. But in the current world, nobody says 
Nobody says no. We only make the other kind of mistake. See, but Russ, I think we have to consider that in America right now, 55% of American households you know, earn under $50,000 a year. And so if you earn under $50,000 a year or less, and you are, well, up until recently you were challenged by high gas prices, mm-hmm. you've been challenged by higher food prices, higher energy prices. Um, right now um, uh, the, the people in America are concerned with uh, the downturn in the, uh, in the overall economy. What does a $2,000 deductible with uh, $200 copayments per, per encounter with the healthcare system, what does that mean? And what we worry about is it means that people will, um, will, will uh, forego access to the healthcare system sure. by putting off that sore throat yep. and saying, you know, I really don't need to have this checked out. Times are really tough right now. I don't have the resources to go to the emergency room or to go to my primary care physician. And then it may be one, two, three, four, and a hundred where that, that sore throat turns out to be stress, right. sure. or it turns out to be that polyp that your dad experienced. Yeah, you bet. And so you've got these economic trade-offs, but what we really are concerned about right now is that out-of-pocket cost-sharing by the typical American um, is, is causing people to really forestall or to postpone needed health care services. And so um, the longer you put the, these conditions off, um, the more we find that people end up in the hospital for avoidable medical conditions or they experience complications that they wouldn't have experienced had they uh, had access to early um, detection and treatment of their condition. So the first, the first challenge is really complicated, which is the more cost-sharing and financial responsibility you put on individuals, um, how much uh, if that is good causing uh, patients and families to really consider carefully their health care consumption and how much of that causes people to forego needed health care services, which only uh, makes it more expensive for everybody else later on. Yeah, there's a trade-off. And, and, That's right. And, and by the way, we're taping this uh, November 24th, uh, 2008, uh, in the middle of some quite a bit of financial turmoil and uncertainty, uh, which what you're referring to earlier. Yeah, so carry on. So the second part of your question, can you just – so we're all current on. Can you restate that one again? Yeah. What fascinates me is, um, <clears throat> you know, at some point in the past, I don't know when it this changed. Maybe in in the eighties or seventies, uh, the the most effective non invasive technique a doctor had available was uh, an X ray, and then that changed. We got um, a whole set of new techniques, MRI and and CAT scans and other things, and they keep getting better, um, as do a whole set of other technologies that we use. Um, you know, robotic surgery done by uh, with a joystick by by the surgeon, or uh, guided by uh, other techniques that improve the the accuracy. So I'm curious the pace of that. So, for example, when you have to decide whether to acquire another MRI machine or whatever is the latest. Uh, technology that's going to make uh, imaging better. Who makes that call? Is that the insurer? Is that the government? Is that you? What's what's it's, deciding that pace? It's actually driven more, I think, by um, intellectual curiosity. And uh, in an environment such as BJC Healthcare, where we are affiliated with one of the leading uh, medical schools in the world, the Washington University School of Medicine, 
it's driven by a desire to create new knowledge and to understand better which technologies work well and, and provide greater benefit to the patients and which ones may not. So when we invest in these technologies, we look at, we use the best professional judgment of our doctors and of our physician scientists, and we consider whether or not, um, we consider how many ben- patients could potentially benefit and what would be um, the likely demand for that technology and those services. We consider whether or not reimbursement um, would be adequate to cover the cost, both from the government and from the private payers. But in a teaching environment that's really committed to, to learning and to discovery and to the creation and dem- dissemination of new knowledge, um, we find that, um, that we're studying these technologies as much as we're applying them at the bedside uh, because we do want to be involved in figuring out what works, what adds value, what creates benefit, and what doesn't. Uh, and so in many cases, we will, um, we will be involved in the early clinical trials or the early dissemination of new technology. Uh, and, um, and by the time there is proliferation out to the larger community, there are usually public, uh, public and published studies that, that talk about uh, which patients will benefit uh, and where we can get the greatest value for those investments in technology. But I'd say, if there, you know, a 1% improvement in the quality of imaging that doubles the cost of imaging is a bad investment. So you're not going to pursue something that just on the basis of whether it improves things. And that's correct. You, you do have to make this, you have to balance the, the, uh, the potential benefit for, say, 1% of the population with the incremental costs. You know, one of the areas, Russ, where this gets the most attention right now is when you're discussing end-of-life care and the amount yeah, of technology and service we provide at the end of life. Yeah, who decides that? Well, you know, I've just been through this with my mom, who passed away last March, and she suffered from leukemia. And during her last two years, her last year and a half of life, she underwent pretty extensive chemotherapy. But at the beginning of that experience, um, if the physician had, had said to her, there's an 80% likelihood that you're in your last two years of life, would she have said, well, I want the treatment to see if I'm in the 20%? That would have been one, one, one approach she could have taken. Yep. She might have answered differently. Once she realized that Medicare was going to cover the cost of that chemotherapy um, and it wasn't going to be a financial burden to either her or her children, yep. she may have also taken that into consideration. But because Medicare does cover that end-of-life care and treatment, she felt that she wanted to see if she would be one of the 20% to benefit from that chemotherapy. Yeah, well, that's understandable. I'm sorry she didn't make it. Well, you know, but, but I, I only use her as an example, and I appreciate your kind words, because I think there are so many families that are now faced with these end-of-life medical decisions that where it's, it's not an absolute certainty that you may be nearing the end of your life, but the probability is there and and uh, and many families want to want to try and beat the odds. Yeah, well, I think it's very hard for people to make a lot of those decisions. Uncertainty and probability are not uh, the average person's strong suit. And in my experience, they're not always the medical profession's strong suit. People have a lot of trouble thinking about that in the correct way, and it's it's difficult. But going back to this question of technology, I think that's a related point. I think it's the same point, but in the technology area. Certainly, there must be cases where, I mean, I've always assumed, and maybe I'm wrong, that 
a technology would you'd want to make sure that the insurers were going to cover it before you adopted it. And there must be issues where you're under legal pressure to use, quote, the best available technology. Is that not true? Well, I think, I think there, are, there are two answers to, to that. One is that the equipment um, and the technology has to be approved in our country by the Food and Drug Administration. It's what we call FDA approval. They approve new drug technology, and they also approve new device technology. Once devices and, and, uh, or equipment or new drugs become FDA-approved, typically they become covered uh, by the insurance companies and by Medicare and Medicaid because they're no longer considered experimental. Uh, and so we do factor in um, uh, the, the, you know, just like any, any business would evaluate the financial feasibility of a new program or a new service based on what they think the likely demand would be, the projected revenue be, would be, and the cost to determine if you've got a financially viable technology and something that can be sustained um, uh, through incremental volume and incremental revenue. So um, there is an approval process that we all go through uh, in the United States. The, um, you know, the other part of the, uh, um, the technology question is just, when do you introduce it and where do you introduce it? And what, we've, what I think we find is that, if anything, our challenge has been, been that we duplicate lots of equipment because we work in a competitive model of healthcare as opposed to a regulated model. So where you might find one kind of a particular uh, piece of medical equipment in the whole province of Saskatchewan in Canada, you may find eight or nine pieces of that same uh, medical technology on Ballast Road here in St. Louis. So, um, but that's what you get with a competitive model as opposed to a, a more regulated, tightly controlled model. Well, let me turn to that because that was my next question. Um, you're an umbrella organization of 13 different hospitals. You, you are nonprofit, and yet there are for-profit hospitals. I don't know if they're there in St. Louis, but I know that in America there are, there's a mix of profit and nonprofit. Correct. So, First question is, how does that profit nonprofit thing affect the competitive environment? And the next question would be, uh, do you face significant con- uh, competition in the St. Louis area, given your size? There is. Um, <clears throat> so the, the two questions: profit, not profit, and then and then competition. Um, when you think about uh, the difference between for-profit and not-for-profit companies, some. Some, um, some of our listeners might uh, believe that not-for-profit companies don't generate a profit, and that's not the case. Both not-for-profit and for-profit companies do generate an operating surplus, or they need to operate, generate an operating surplus. The big difference is that for-profit companies, for-profit hospitals, are able to distribute their earnings to individuals for individual benefit. They can distribute those earnings to shareholders, to owners, to investors. Not-for-profit organizations do not distribute their earnings for individual benefit. By law, they are required to retain those earnings for community benefit. And so recently you may have read a a lot in the newspaper about the community benefit obligations of not-for-profit hospitals or hospital systems. And what they're referring to is because not-for-profit hospitals do not distribute their earnings, uh, for individual benefit, but retain them for community benefit. What is this community benefit? How do we measure it? How do we quantify it? 
and how do we report it back to the public? And so there is another um, for-profit uh, hospital system here in St. Louis. Tenet Healthcare is here, and they own St. Louis University Hospital and Tapair Hospital. The earnings from those hospitals could be taken back to headquarters in Dallas. It could be reallocated to other hospitals that Tenet owns across the country, or potentially it could be distributed to tenant shareholders or owners or investors as dividends. BJC Healthcare doesn't do that. Our earnings are retained because we are, are uh, all of our own properties are right here in the St. Louis metropolitan area. We lease a hospital in Columbia, Missouri, and we manage one in Flora, Illinois. But our owned hospitals are here, so we retain our earnings in this geography, and we redeploy them um, within our hospitals and within our community for community benefit. And so all hospitals need to generate a positive operating margin, as we talked about a little bit earlier, in order to renew their patient care infrastructure, to replace their facilities, to buy new equipment uh, and new instrumentation. But, um, but the big difference between a for-profit and a not-for-profit is what you do with those earnings. And at least at BJC, we're able to retain them for community benefit in this particular community. Well, that sounds good, but there's a cost to that system, of course, which is that in in the rest of the economy, we, we sometimes think of healthcare as being different. But in the rest of the economy, the role of profit and loss is to induce uh, prudent risk-taking on the part of owners, right? So I like to say that profit induces risk-taking. That's the upside. Right. And the loss is what induces prudence about the risk-taking. And you need both. And in the case of a, a for-profit operation, the stockholders or the owners, uh, they judge the bottom line and they decide whether the people running the company are doing a good job. Now, I'm sure you're doing a phenomenal job. Uh, you know, I don't doubt it for a minute. But it's a different situation, right? There's in a not-for-profit, whether the community is investing is benefiting or not. And again, BJC is a wonderful hospital system. Uh, I can attest to it personally. But of course, the the community doesn't decide uh, whether you're doing a good job or not. There's no feedback loop like there is in a profit system. So let me ask the question in a more perhaps a more tasteful way. Um, in the case of a of a nonprofit hospital, who does the CEO try to please? If if it's not the shareholders. Um, and it can't be the community because the community doesn't doesn't set your pay or hire or fire you. Who are you accountable to in, in, in the abstract? Not you personally, in, in but in general. In the abstract, I have, I've always kind of felt that as, as the CEO of BJC, I'm accountable to our patients. Um, and I think our board, there's a board of, of trustees that is representative of the community uh, that oversees BJC Healthcare to whom I, I uh, report and they really ask for things of, of me as the CEO, and um, I try and lead the organization this way. They ask us to take very, very good care of people. And, and remembering that patients come to us at a time of great personal need, um, a time when they're afraid, they're anxious, they're concerned. And, um, and so it, it, it's to give them a positive patient experience and to take very good care of them means we need to, um, to not only um, recruit and retain the very best in healthcare professionals, 
but we need to give them the clinical environment and the tools and instrumentation to do their very best work. So job number one is taking very good care of patients. Two is we need to operate BJC in a financially responsible way. Um, and for, uh, for most of us, whether that's your family or your business, a financially responsible way means living within your resources so that your revenues exceed your expenses and you have a little bit of money left over at the end of the month. And that money that's left over at the end of the month in your family budget may go to saving for college or saving for retirement or to purchase a new car um, or to uh, um, anything you might um, acquire in either physical assets or financial assets. And we do the same. We, um, we try and make our, our revenues a little bit more than our expenses so that we have money left over at the end of every month to renew our property, our plant, and our equipment. The third thing we do is we position our hospital to be around for a very, very long time. It is true that we're different from a for-profit enterprise in that we are not thinking just about next quarter's earnings or next month's earnings or what the value of the stock will be, but rather we're trying to position our hospitals and our service organizations to be around for a very, very long time so that they truly are an asset to the community and provide the community with a sustainable advantage over time. And then I think the fourth thing that the board expects of me is that we stay true to our social and our academic mission. Our academic mission in that we are heavily committed to uh, educating the next generation of healthcare professionals, advancing medical science and technology. Our social mission plays out in, in several respects. Not only is it the, the charity care and the unreimbursed care that we provide, but it's also our investments in in public health, in community wellness, um, and in prevention and early detection of disease. So um, we call those our four key result areas. Taking very good care of patients, operating in a financially responsible way, positioning the hospitals to be around for a long time, and staying true to our social and our academic mission. It's such a weird thing because those goals conflict with each other, as they do in any organization. Well, and they don't they don't conflict so much as they need to be balanced with one right. another. Right. Well, they, there's trade-offs is, is the sort of the economics perspective on it. And in a in a for-profit environment, and of course you're in a weird uh, environment because of the incentives we talked about at the beginning of our conversation with pricing and, and the role, how little out of pocket, <clears throat> virtually none, uh, there is in America today. So you know, the, the the incentives you face are are quite unusual and i would think it'd be strange given there must be much political pressure from you within the organization and without to try to meet those go- balance those goals in a way that that is uh that's effective you know i think it it's um the key word is still balance because i think that our board understands the economic realities of needing to operate in a financially responsible way and that um that there needs to be a balance of both your financial assets, your physical assets, and importantly, your human assets, so that um, you're not going to spend all the money you have in your savings account today, even though you may have urgent need today, because you want to position yourself to be around for a long time into the future. You are not going to always be able to build contemporary state-of-the-art facilities um, because you need to because you need to keep in mind that buildings don't take care of patients, people do. And so you have to invest um, uh, the right balance of resources in your human assets. And 
you know, remembering that, that doctors and nurses and therapists and technologists are, are still at the core of our delivery system. Sure. And at, at, you, when you get right down to it, we, we're, we're, not so much a, we're not a production industry so much as we are an industry of people taking care of other people. Sure. Well, let's turn to that because I want to bring up a couple of issues that have come up in previous uh, podcasts. One issue we've talked about on here is specialization. It's a fascinating aspect of the human enterprise generally, the increasing specialization, uh, which which is everywhere in our in our economy, but it's particularly, I think, intense in in the medical profession. So, you know, a hundred years ago, you had you were a doctor, or you weren't a doctor. You might be a surgeon, but now you're not just a surgeon. You might be a pediatric surgeon. You might be a pediatric oncology surgeon. So, the level of specialization is incredibly. Uh, much more intense. And one of the things we talked about, and I'd love to hear your perspective, is how does a hospital, given that level of specialization, which is, has wonderful benefits in terms of the incredible knowledge that today's doctors have, how do you balance that against the holistic or what I call the complexity of, of the human body when different aspects of specialization interact in not always well-anticipated ways by specialists. So how do you keep one specialist from doing something that looks very good for the, for the liver or the kidney but isn't so good for the rest of the body because there isn't always perfect information about what's going on? Another way to put it is uh, I think a lot of people go in when, they're, when their loved ones, family members and friends go into a, a, a hospital environment, they, they tend to become an advocate to make sure that things aren't overlooked and inter- interactions aren't missed that, that might happen. How does the hospital try to reduce those problems? I think that, that you're bringing up um, uh, an excellent point. And, and what's driving specialization, what's driving specialization is the, um, is the surge of new knowledge in our, in our profession. So there was a time when, when you visited your internal medicine physician or your pediatrician, and the clinical judgments they would make about you as a patient or about a family member um, was based on maybe five pieces of information, maybe an X-ray, maybe a blood test, maybe a um, um, physical findings on their, uh, on their physical exam. Sure. And, but those five or six data elements they could pretty much keep in their head. Then, um, then with the, the introduction of genetic information uh, and just taking you and me, Russ, you know, the differences between us, there are um, something like 30,000-plus you know, 30, gene pairs in the, in the uh, human anatomy, and um, all but you know, 1% of those gene pairs between you and me are probably identical. Right. But the, um, the ones that are different then introduce a whole... Hmm next set of information. And so once, let's say you and I both have diabetes, um, it may be that the mutation which causes your diabetes in your genes is different than the one that causes mine, and so therefore your treatment course may be more amenable to insulin where mine may not. Right. And so when you have this huge proliferation of information that is now available within, within medicine, you've seen a super specialization um, Within the internal medicine, within the surgical specialties, within the within the neurosciences, uh, and so um, that expertise 
in a, in a singular focused area has become very respected and very valued by the way we we currently um, pay for healthcare in America. And so you will find that the more specialty training you have, the higher your income typically will be. So that internal medicine physicians make um, a a small percentage of what the proceduralists or the surgeons make, and um, and that imbalance has caused more and more doctors and graduating medical students and residents to pursue careers in the specialties, uh, just as as any other professional would respond to the economic incentives that are before them. So you've got that dilemma, which is that the system rewards specialty training, and there's such a uh, there's such a proliferation of medical knowledge that the um, that the generalist physician is now more and more dependent on either the specialist to whom the, uh, he or she might refer or on information technology, which helps to both store and retrieve all that information for the doctor's benefit. Why do the specialists make so much more? Um, that's a very good question, um, for which I don't really have a good answer. I think that... Because that's a whole other weird market that's not quite like our regular markets. It is, it's a very, very strange market in that it's determined by work units, um, and so originally, I think the the, the compensation um, the compensation differences were based on the fact that specialty training required more education, more years of residency training, sure. and so because of the longer learning period, the services of those specialties were valued um, more than the disciplines that required shorter training periods. But over time, um, those differences, the disparity in income earning potential among the specialties has really gotten out of whack. And um, it's, um, it's a function of the way Medicare pays doctors based on work RVUs or relative value units. So Medicare assigns a relative value unit of work for every service that a physician provides, and then those value units are weighted, and they are disproportionately weighted um, towards the specialties that uh, have procedures involved. And so there's shortages and surpluses, presumably, that artificially emerge. That is correct. In various specialties. And and so there's a real shortage now of primary care physicians. Uh, and um, because not only is it less remunerative, but there are fewer and fewer doctors pursuing careers in, um, in primary care um, because of the lifestyle, um, yeah. the, lifestyle uh, the work-life balance issues. Yep. Let's go back. Maybe we'll come back to that later. Okay. I interrupted your your uh, your answer to the to the question. So there's more specialization, and within that, which is which has many benefits. It has this cost, though, that that in as you increase the number of doctors working on any one person, right. the ability of them to communicate that knowledge to each other is going to be harder. Right. You can use technology to to try to reduce that the missing information, but it, it's in, inevitably imperfect. It is imperfect. And so are hospitals doing anything to try to um, – I'm told there's things called hospitalists. I don't know what those are, <laughs> really. Hospitalists are physicians who spend 100% of their time in the hospital. And so the advantage of having a hospitalist is, is um, uh, he or she is a coordinating physician among, uh, of all the care you would receive while you're in the hospital. But the problem is, is that, as you know, episodes of care go beyond the hospital setting. And so um, 
a, a shortcoming of the hospitalist model is that there's a, there's a handoff involved between the primary care physician who practices out in the community and the hospitalist who practices in the acute care setting. And the more handoffs you have between doctors and professionals and specialists, the, the greater opportunity there is for failures of care coordination yeah. um, and uh, with a resulting, dec- yeah, um, with a resulting um, decrease in the effectiveness of the overall care. Yeah. But I think you're bringing up a point that I, that I want to comment on, which is that in our society, we have come, become increasingly reliant upon physicians and hospitals to coordinate our medical care and to make sure that hospital A is talking to hospital B or physician A is talking to physician B. You know, I've lived in St. Louis now for nine years, and I have visited with my my primary care physician fewer than nine times. Um, And so can that person possibly be my real primary care provider, or is that person a, 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 a medical content expert on whom I would rely for advice and counsel but I need to take a more active role in coordinating my own care. I'm a strong believer that whether you're in the hospital or you're at home, you really need to involve family members in coordinating your care, understanding the medicines that you're on, um, having a knowledge of the physicians that you see and, and, um, and who talks to each other. Hospitals can, can aid this effort through lots of communication strategies and through the use of uh, electronic health records and by sharing information in a very transparent and open, open, uh, uh, open way. But, but um, there's a real important role for family members to play in helping to coordinate the care and, um, and participate in the care of their loved ones. You make an excellent point. I think to a large extent we come to over-depend on our our medical uh, uh, practitioners as as superheroes, and many of them are. I mean, they do extraordinary things, and so we um, we put our life in their hands often anyway. So we figure, well, they're going to take care of it. And you're inevitably, it's it's a the fact that they can is part of the human enterprise and unavoidable. Um, they can't do everything. That's right. And I think you know, I'll, I'll go back to you. You know, my mom as an example. She was leaving a chemotherapy treatment one day, walking to her car. Or, or being wheeled to her car, she fell getting in and broke her leg and ended up in the emergency room. Well, then somebody would need to coordinate the care between her internist, the oncologist, the emergency room physician, and the orthopedic surgeon. And, and perhaps because I've worked in hospitals now for 25 years, I just knew there, there would never be anybody who was going to care as much about my mom as I was going to care about my mom. No doubt about it. And so, <laughs> uh, you know... Um, the, uh, there just is a role for family members to play, and the more involved the family member can be in the care of their loved one when they're in the hospital and out of the hospital, the better uh, the overall coordination of care will be. I want to turn to a related issue, which is the role of, of data and uh, in making decisions in the hospital. I want to mention a couple of issues that have come up in past podcasts and get your reaction. Um, one one example that came up in a podcast with David Leonhardt of the New York Times was this issue of door to balloon time. So a person comes in with chest pains or heart heart attack issues, and you want to get a balloon angioplasty in them. And some hospitals take a very long time to have that happen, and some do it more quickly. And discovery was made that when you actually just measured it, uh, you realize sometimes that you weren't doing the best job. So measuring is in general 
a good thing. On the other hand, you have an issue. I can't remember whether this was in a podcast or just someone who's been keeping me up to date on this, but you know, people come in with <coughs> con- congestion, and I feel bad for you today. You got a cough. Right. Um, it's probably just a cough. We hope so, but it yep. could it could be pneumonia. It so, could be, but I haven't gone to visit a doctor yet. So, but when you go to that doctor, if you're like my wife, who went a couple years back, the doctor puts a stethoscope on her and says, "Yeah, I think you're fine. Go home." But it turned out it was pneumonia. So, some hospitals have a they want to measure the proportion of their congestion patients who get an X-ray so they can avoid missing a pneumonia diagnosis. But of course, that's really expensive. Um, another example would be hand washing. Supposedly. Hand washing is a really good idea, and doctors don't wash their hands enough. So studies have found, again, using data that doctors, the more more they wash their hands, the better results are. Um, How do you use data in your hospital? How do you make sure you're not overusing it? And how do you monitor uh, compliance when you're doing something based on data and it goes against, say, a doctor's rule of thumb? I know a lot of doctors personally, just friends of mine, who make fun of that hand-washing thing. Yeah, that's, uh, that's silly. You don't need to wash your hands so much. Or, yeah, it's probably a good idea, but I don't do it. It's I don't know. I'm not in the habit. So how do you change those habits uh, when they're good ideas and, and when not to? We do. Um, BJC has an organization called the Center for Healthcare Quality and Effectiveness, and we measure everything we do. Um, we measure our processes of care. We measure uh, what you... The, all the processes you, you talked about earlier, door-to-balloon time, we measure the frequency of hand-washing because hand-washing um, is correlated with rates of infection. We measure the rates at which we administer antibiotics. Um, we measure the, the, um, the, uh, <clears throat> uh, the timeliness with which we provide a variety of services because in some instances, the timeliness and the accuracy and the completeness of a specific process is directly correlated with outcomes. And so um, BJC made these investments over the last four years, but we have 68 black belts on our staff. These are people who are black belt trained in uh, techniques of lean and Six Sigma. Lean, you may be familiar with, are the techniques that are used in industry to eliminate waste. Six Sigma are the techniques used in industry to eliminate variability. And we find that if we can eliminate waste or unnecessary steps in a medical care process, if we can eliminate variability from hospital to hospital, from doctor to doctor, from patient to patient, and provide a more consistent experience, then we can automate steps in that process and make sure we get it right for every patient every time. So I think we have become increasingly reliant on data in our uh, clinical environments. Measuring is a good thing. It, it leads to continuous improvement. And... Um, and we continuously benchmark ourselves against best demonstrated practice so that while we may not always be there, we, uh, we aspire to get it right for every patient every time. How do you, have you seen improvement in those four years? Yes, dramatic improvement. Can you give an example? Um, well, you know, part of the, the most dramatic example is the frequency with which we get it right all the time. So right now, about 50% of our measured indicators are in the top 10% nationally. They may have been in the upper quartile before, uh, but now they're in the top 10%. When we look at the rate at which we, had, we administer thrombolytics um, for uh, people who come to our emergency rooms with, with a heart attack, if we used to be able to get those, those, those 
uh, medicines administered in 30 minutes. Now we're getting them in a shorter time frame. And so, um, again, when you, when you focus on dimensions of process excellence, whether that be timeliness, accuracy, or completeness, um, the more, when you can improve in those three dimensions, uh, we see better outcomes for our patients. And do you see, do you have people studying the relationship between that, those procedures and, and the timeliness and the variability and their, their effect on outcomes? Yes. I mean, obviously, if, if it's, it doesn't matter whether you do it. Most of the indicators we use are national indicators. We're kind of, you know, we, we do some of this research locally, but, but there's a lot of best demonstrated practice out there, what we call evidence-based medicine, yeah. where we use what, we've, what we already know and make sure that we're doing it consistently. And how do you deal with, am I right that some doctors are a little bit uncomfortable with that? Because, quote, I've always done it this way. Um. You, have, you know, I think that cultural issues along those lines. I think you would find in you know there are over two thousand physicians that that work at BJC hospitals, including over a thousand academic physicians and many physicians who are in private practice, and they were all trained at different times in history. Um, so some are much more facile with using electronic technology than others. I grew up using email. My children now use text messaging. Um, I didn't think I would ever live to see email become obsolete. Um, but I think what we're finding is way. that... Pardon? Yeah, it could be on its way. But I think there, you know, our, our more senior physicians have accumulated a career's worth of experience and knowledge that is extremely valuable. So I think we find that we learn from them, and they also learn from, uh, you know, from the evidence as we've accumulated over time, and so what we try and create is an environment in which learning and innovation feed off of each other to continually improve patient care. Uh, what kind of regulations keep you from sometimes making those improvements? Do you find that frustrating? Are there such regulations and are they frustrating? Um, I don't think any regulations keep us from making those improvements. Some may, may slow down the process a little bit. Um, you know, one of the things that you... One of the really important regulations that we work under now is called the uh, is called the Health Insurance Privacy and Portability Act, called HIPAA. Yep. And, Sign um, those forms. And so, in protecting patient confidentiality, we sometimes don't share information among clinicians that perhaps we should. Um, so we have we have to figure out the 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 right balance of ensuring patient privacy and confidentiality but making sure that if you have important information in your medical record that should be available to an emergency room when, uh, you, know, when you might frequent there without planning ahead, that, um, that we get medical information to where it's needed at the time it's needed and available to people who are providing you with needed medical care. Yeah, I know that's an interesting example. Obviously, again, it's a trade-off. Obviously, you don't want your medical records spread around where pe- people can see them, right. but there are some people you really want them to see them. <laughs> <clears throat> as your doctors. I'm a real believer in personal health records um, as differentiated from electronic health records. Electronic health records are the records that, um, that, they, uh, that your physician keeps on your behalf for you as a patient. The BJC developed a, a benefit for our employees called myhealthfolders.com, and it's an Internet-based tool where I can keep folders online for my wife, my three children, my mom when she was alive, anybody in my family. And so one of those folders is medications. And I can scroll from my wife Susan's medications to Ross's medications to my medications to mom's medications. 
if I'm if I'm managing that aspect of our family health. Uh, and I think when we figured it out, because my wife has her internist, I have a different internist. She has a neurologist. I have a cardiologist. She may have an she has an obstetrician gynecologist. Our kids have different pediatricians. We would be on 15 different electronic health record platforms where by taking responsibility for managing some of our own medical information, we have it in one place at www.myhealthfolders.com, and with just a, you know, a pin and a password, I can get access to that information from any emergency room anywhere in the world. Again, that's very cool, but again, the, the trade-off would be I, there's, a, there's a very big security issue there, right? Well, there isn't any. There isn't for this particular product because it's on a secure server, and the only person that can get access to it is me. In theory, um, as an employer, I don't have access to that information because we keep it secure, and um, and I suppose it, it's uh, um, if I give my PIN number to an emergency room to access my records, the software is written so that that PIN number changes within two weeks' time. That's cool. So we, we do everything we can to protect patient privacy, but we also realize there's huge value and, and, and health status improvement to be realized from uh, having our employees um, and patients more generally take responsibility for managing some of their own health information. Well, I assume at some point I'll just have a chip uh, in my arm or somewhere that the doctor will scan and it'll tell you that information. Um, that's true, but anybody walking by you with it, with one of the portable scanners and that yeah, well. they could just steal your medical information. <laughs> yeah, well, it'll have a special shield around it. It'll <laughs> if you want to go to myhealthfolders.com, we'll get you set up. Okay, well, we'll put a link up to it and let people check it out. We're almost out of time. I want to just a closing question. Um, if you could do anything to the current uh, regulatory environment, what would you change? What would you make? Uh, what do you think is the biggest single? improvement we can make in medical care if we're making a single change? I'll, t- I'll tell you, it's a, it's a great question, Russ, because um, uh, Max Baucus, who is the chairman of the Senate Finance Committee, just came out with an 89-page white paper on pretty much everything that's wrong with the American healthcare system. I'm sure he wrote every word of it. <laughs> uh, and and what, what troubles me about the report isn't that I would make any argument with, with um with what he's written, only with the the sheer volume and complexity of the issues that are before us. And so if I could make any change, it would be to recognize that um, when our founding fathers created our three branches of government, the executive, legislative, and judicial, they didn't create those branches of government to uh, design and implement the American healthcare system. And so one of the models that I have become really uh, um, interested in is the Federal Reserve model of creating a health board or a health policy board for the United States that is chartered, legally chartered by Congress. And, um, and being legally chartered by Congress, they would set up guiding principles just like they did for the Federal Reserve. The, the guiding principles they gave to the Federal Reserve were to keep, it, uh, keep inflation low and keep unemployment low. And the guides we would give to a United States State's Health Board would be to guarantee access to health insurance, whether you're rich or poor, employed or not, or whether or not you have a pre-existing condition, that we make that access affordable in terms of both your insurance premium and your out-of-pocket cost sharing, which we talked about earlier is important, 
and that we give you choice, choice of doctors, choice of, of hospitals, and choice of insur- insurance products. So you get guaranteed affordable choice would be the guiding principles, and then you would set up a United States Health Board, and you would delegate to that board all responsibility for regulating and supervising health insurance in America. And just by setting up the board as the, the, one, the, one, the one first step that, that um, we would take, you can then begin to tackle real problems like the ones you and I have talked about, like um, the administrative cost burden in the, in the current American healthcare system and how pricing doesn't make sense anymore. But you wouldn't have to set pricing nationally. You could just create a, um, the units of service on which we would base prices, whether that be diagnostic-related groups or relative value units. Um, uh, but there'd be more consistency um, and less fragmentation. And so I, I think that would be my first regulation, would be to take the long-term planning horizon, um, to set up a long-term planning horizon for the American healthcare system, which cannot be every other year election cycles that we have for the United States Congress. Two years um, between election cycles, even four years for one president or eight years for a two-term president, doesn't give the American healthcare system a long enough planning horizon um, which is the foundation on, that we need in order to fix some of the problems you and I have discussed today. Now, there's no doubt that the politicization of healthcare is a, a major impediment to, to better outcomes. I am drawn to the quote from Hayek's book, The Fatal Conceit. The curious task of economics is to demonstrate to men how little they really know about what they imagine they can design. And we I think suffer from a surfeit of design in the current system, whether your structural change would be an improvement or not, it's hard to say. I think it would certainly, it might be a step in the right direction, um, step in well, an improved direction. I don't know if it's a step in the right direction. Well, you know, as an economist, you know that that the, uh, the seven people who are appointed to the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve are appointed, for four, they're appointed by the President and confirmed by the Senate for terms of 14 years which is longer than the term of a congressman or a senator or even a president. And, um, and you may also recall um, that, that most of the work, in fact, all of the work of the Federal Reserve with which I'm familiar, is really buffered from political consideration in that you will never find a lobbyist or a special interest um, influencing um, the Fed funds rate, at least not um, directly um, to my knowledge. I think so, that's true. And so I think if you could, uh, if you remember that our attempts at, at reforming the American healthcare system have always been either influenced or, or perhaps even outright, uh, outrightly derailed by special interests, we've got to create this private public infrastructure that takes the what of what's wrong with the American healthcare system and gives us a platform on which to figure out how to solve the problems and over, over a longer time frame. Well, I'm not sure this is the best month to be uh, using the Fed as a as an analogy. I, I like <clears throat> I like your point about getting it out of the lobbying world. Although I, I think we've probably been spared some mistakes in healthcare design by lobbying. So it's probably a little more of a mixed bag. Well, try and imagine where we would be right now in our economy without the Federal Reserve, um, because they, they really have acted. Um, 
fairly deliberately and maybe not in a way that you that you would have preferred, but without without such a central bank function, um, we might be in worse shape than we are today. We might. Some would blame them for the problems we're in, though. So it's a it's a complicated situation. I think I think the political point that's fascinating that we don't have an answer to, which is uh, which is better to have explicit lobbying going on or implicit. Um, it may be an illusion to think there could ever be such a board, either at the Fed or in the health world, that is uh, not subject to political pressure. Um, it, it, for me, it would be at least a step in the right direction. Yeah, maybe something to at least to imagine as a possible improvement. Um, it's a nice idea. It, the the lack of political influence, but I just don't know if it's re- if it's if it's if it's real. Well, my guest today has been Stephen Lipstein, president and CEO of BJC Healthcare. Steve, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thanks for having me, Russ. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.